Previously on the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Fuck. Wrong show. Hello. And hello. And hi there. Welcome to another Chatting Tonight. Chatting Tonight was recently voted least listenable podcast by the executives at Spotify. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Tonight, let's chat about the fact that maybe you're not crazy, and maybe they're just an asshole. So sit back, relax, kittens, and let's assuage that ego. Now, many of you no one. have asked me, Margo, how do you come up with these incredibly diverse topical, and what feels to me like deeply personal subject matters to discuss. Great question. Tonight's episode actually is personal. I contemplated this very topic as a thesis paper, hoping for eventual publication in an academic journal. However, I do feel it's important for me to interject here that I did spell academic wrong in my notes because I was writing so fast. So you can now see how I ended up here instead of on the board of some fancy hospital. (laughs) Okay, that's enough of that nonsense. Let's get into this nonsense. Typically, when you think of Aronomania, you might go like one of two ways. Either it's, huh? Or you think of the psychiatric syndrome characterized by the delusional belief that one is loved by another person. Generally, these people are of a higher social status. Today, we refer to it as celebrity. So maybe you're thinking of Margaret Mary Ray, who famously stalked David Letterman for years and years and years. I mean, she was arrested eight times for her obsessive behavior, for crying out loud. She even stole his Porsche and was driving around with her three-year-old son in it. Or maybe you're thinking of Robert Hoskins, who stalked Madonna and eventually was sent to prison for 10 years for that. Or John Hinckley. And let me just say, you poor youngins, you're just lucky I'm not talking about Rebecca Schaefer, or you would be like maybe even more lost. So John Hinckley, who was so obsessed with Jodie Foster that he attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan in order to try and get her attention Because, you know, that letter that he sent her, somehow that didn't work. There's also a few great case studies, one from 1980 about a woman who mistakenly believed that several men at different times were obsessively in love with her and pursuing her. And I'll provide a link to that just in case anyone wants to read it. It's not required. There's never a test with chatting tonight. Or maybe you're thinking of the most famous of all fictional 
Alex Forrest from Fatal Attraction. And actually, actually, if you take away the BPD, the obsessive calling, the bunny boiling, the like kidnapping of the daughter, the B&E, the assault with the knife, etc., she's kind of a great example of what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, barring those teeny tiny problems and maybe hopefully we will conversationally loop back to that later if I remember because I promise there is a point to this well I don't promise I'm hoping that we have a point to all of this maybe but what I really want to get into with you guys is what could be called lesser erotomania or maybe imposed erotomania I don't know I'm, I'm still trying to think of a catchy name so what makes what we're talking about different is number one take away the celebrity and two what we have is a person who makes you feel like they're in love with you and then maybe makes you feel crazy for thinking that you know assholes that's a clinical term, by the way. Perhaps this story might sound vaguely familiar to you. Once upon a time, the person you've met is incredible. I mean, this is fucking unbelievable. Holy shit. You've never felt this way. You've never been treated this way or talk to like this. They're practically serenading you with compliments and praise. Daily affirmations. You have become the center of their world because they have waited so goddamn long to find you. A lifetime. This is how true love is supposed to feel, right? Or are they love bombing your ass? So what do these love bombs look like or sound like or better yet feel like? Here are some red flags from Dr. Fox for you all to watch out for. I want to spoil you. They send you lavish gifts, take you on expensive trips, and adorn you with jewelry or whatnot in a short amount of time. But later, they'll remind you how much they've done for you and the gifts they've given you. I've never met someone more beautiful than you. They give overwhelming compliments even before they know enough about you to warrant such a compliment. And as an aside, you are worth those compliments. But when they say it, it feels almost unauthentic or fake. I just want to be with you all the time. They demand your attention and time, ignoring your time and schedule. They may isolate you from family and friends and may become angry or make you feel guilty when you make plans with others. I just check in because I'm worried. 
They need constant reassurance and text, call, or message you 24-7 to check in. On the surface, this constant contact may seem romantic, but they actually want to know where you are and what you're doing at all times because the focus is supposed to be on them, darling. We're soulmates. They may use lines that remind you how good you are together, that in some way this relationship was fated to happen. When we're married or when we have kids, they will pressure you into rushing things and making big plans for the future when you've only known each other a short while. When I'm with you, I just can't help myself. When you tell them to slow down, they clearly don't respect your boundaries. They don't care about your limits and are probably testing to see just how far they can go. Our love makes me do crazy things. They get set off easily and become defensive or abusive if criticized or challenged. They may even become violent if they don't get their ways. They may use, and definitely will use, not even may, controlling tactics like gaslighting. My ex was a psycho. They refuse any blame or responsibility for the failing of any of their previous relationships. So what if I just texted this other girl guy? What about the trip I just took you on? They use tit for tat to justify bad behavior or tit for tit. If you recognize some of these statements and red flags, ask yourself these questions. Does this person make you feel comfortable or are you nervous around them? Do you feel like the intensity of the relationship is too much sometimes? Does this person seem genuine in their intentions or do they seem fake or artificial? How much do you really know about this person? Have other relationships in your life changed? Are you no longer in touch with certain friends and loved ones? Do you feel like you must walk on eggshells around them? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I'm going to ask you to heed the words of the tremendously famous British band Pink Floyd and run like hell. Or is it the honeymoon phase? Why I ought to marry you? You know, where every day is filled with discovery and excitement as you become more enraptured with your partner. Your heart races when you're together. It aches when you're apart. Your whole world could flip upside down and everything would be okay because you have each other. Everything just works. You feel high, high on love, and you are. Your dumb brain is flooding itself with dopamine. It's a reward system and your body is physically responding to that other person. Your person. Puke. Now, if you're with a normal person capable of a relationship, you may move out of the honeymoon phase and into a deeper, more meaningful relationship. 
But lots of times, relationships end here. But why? Well, one reason could be that our culture glamorizes love and glosses over the actual work a relationship is or the minutia that occurs in life. Or maybe it's the refusal to just admit that it's normal to want someone new after being with someone else for a period of time. Because when people believe diminished physical contact is an automatic sign that the relationship is in trouble, then they feel like too guilty or ashamed to talk about that. So it makes sense that they may idealize a connection or an affair with someone else as better. Or it ended because they're a junkie, a dopamine junkie. And either they're a junkie because they love the thrill of the chase, or they're a junkie because you're responsible for their self-worth. And if you're dealing with a junkie, guess what? They're gonna find another dealer because your stash ain't getting them high no more. So which of these is it? It doesn't matter because you're the idiot for thinking something was there and you're not alone, okay? In the case of both the narc and the junkie, they're trying to derive their self-value from someone else. And what inevitably happens in these situations is that you will fail somehow, and it doesn't matter how. And that is not your fault. It's impossible for someone to get their self-worth from someone else. They can add to it or enhance it, they need your attention, not you. They're in a trap of trying to seek out external validation for their self-esteem. In order for them to feel great, someone else needs to think they're great. Well, spoiler alert, no one is great all the time. So you see how you've been set up for failure? Now, when we come back, let's take a look at some of the issues doing this creates. for the greatest design show ever. 10 designers will be challenged to create a charger that doesn't break in two months. You'll each be given 10 feet of cable, a USB ABC connector, and an internal wire. Get ready, designers. Make it work. Sundays on Lifetime this fall. Is it just me or does that Tim Gunn show sound amazing? Okay, we're back. So let's talk about seeking self-esteem from others. For many people, hurt and invalidation starts early and continues throughout their whole life. And as a result, many people learn that their fundamental sense of self-esteem and self-worth comes not from within, but from others. And so they constantly seek other people's approval or attention, forgetting 
that the first word in self-esteem is self and it becomes other esteem. And here, this person has two problems. One, they constantly need other people's approval and validation to feel that they are a good person, to feel pleasant emotions, or to even feel alive. And two, they feel shame or guilt or anger or loneliness or anxiety or confusion or other painful emotions when someone disapproves of and then therefore invalidates them, which often leads to dysfunctional behavior to manage it all. As a coping mechanism, some individuals become people pleasers who are afraid to be their true selves or to take care of themselves. They don't know who they really are, what they actually feel, what they truly think, or what they even like. Their mental boundaries are enmeshed with others because they were raised to take care of others before themselves. And other people can develop different methods where they disregard others, their boundaries, their humanity, and they only care about themselves. You know, narcissists and other people with antisocial behavior. But neither one of these kinds of people are your problem. Remember that. Remind yourself that. Let, let's say you fell for one of these people and you fell for their bullshit and now your handful of sand is empty. If you're a genuine person, then take heart. It's not really your fault. You tried. You went there and you were vulnerable. And there is not a goddamn thing wrong with that. So if you're beating yourself up over this, cut yourself a little bit of slack. But also do yourself a favor and take a quick inventory to see if maybe you're relying a little too much on external validation or other esteem. Because we all do that sometimes, you know, we're human. Relationships are important. Connection is important. All you have to do is notice the invigoration you feel when you believe that someone really understood you during a good conversation. You may even be feeling it now. Or the tension and distress that you feel after an argument. So it's important to take a step back and be honest with ourselves about where we devote our time and whether we are doing things that are of a positive benefit to ourselves. Being aware of what you're doing can help put relief on where you'd like to be because we all rely on friends and loved ones for support and encouragement. Part of that is external validation. How much is too much? Are you falling into that trap? Ask yourself this shit. Actually, you know what? I'll ask you. Do you ever feel guilty about setting boundaries with others? Or are you overachieving an attempt to garner praise from others? Jumping from relationship to relationship without taking the time to heal because you feel like you can't be alone? Having difficulty making decisions on your own without someone else's input? 
Saying yes to tasks and plans you prefer saying no to so that you can maintain approval from others. Do you have an inability to disagree with or challenge others due to a fear of being judged or abandoned? Maybe comparing yourself constantly to others and feeling a chronic sense of lack without acknowledging your unique strengths? Becoming emotionally distressed when you're not the center of attention and frantic attempts to recenter yourself. Punishing yourself for not being chosen or acknowledged in contexts such as friendship, school, or work. Fabricating or exaggerating life circumstances to gain sympathy from others. If you found yourself acknowledging some of these questions, congratulations. You're a human being, a imperfect, fallible human being. Doesn't it just suck? So first, be nice to yourself. Care about you first. It's fantastic to care about others, but for some people, caring so much about other people can lead you to think that you're only worthy of love as long as somebody loves you or as long as you have someone to dedicate yourself to. So devote some of that time to you. Find out how great you are and others will follow. Be clear about what you want in someone else and be cognizant that maybe you aren't idealizing someone because imagine how uncomfortable you feel when someone says like, you're perfect. Like you poo poo that shit narrative because the expectation is way too high to place upon yourself. So don't do it to someone else because trust me, honey, they ain't perfect as well. And try not to compare yourself to other people. It's super difficult to do, but achievable. Research has shown that we often make these ridiculously biased and unattainable comparisons in regards to other people and ourselves. And if you're using an unrealistic target when evaluating your own abilities, you're in for a major disappointment. And worst of all, you did it to yourself. You literally set yourself up for failure and achieved it. Why? Why are you doing that? So try to or start to practice acknowledging what you bring to the table because I guarantee it's a lot. So you're okay. I'm okay. But is Alex okay? Okay, that was my attempt at some seamless conversational looping. I, I tried. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to put a lid on this bunny boiler pot if it's the last thing I do. As we know, the key symptom of erotomania is a resolute and delusional belief by someone that another person is in love with them. And we also know that there are some people that make other people think they're in love with them when they aren't. But did you know that on both sides of this coin that social media can play a part in this? 
With our standard definition of erotomania, social media eliminates some of the barriers between unacquainted people and can easily be used to observe, contact, and even stalk people who would previously have been unaccessible. Social media platforms reduce privacy and when we use our imposed erotomania definition, social media also provides anonymity as well as giving assholes ways to find out more about you to draw you in. And you can ghost or be ghosted with ease. Poof. But let's get back to Alex. Earlier we talked about how she could actually be a sympathetic character if you took away the largely harmful behavior. And if you have the time, I'd like to read you a fantastic perspective on the Fatal Attraction story by Anne Friedberg, a little bit on Glenn Close's thoughts, and a blurb about the reboot of Fatal Attraction. This essay is revised from a talk given for the demystifying Hollywood session of the American Psychiatric Association annual conference held way back in 1989. Now, this essay was published in 1990 in the American Journal of Semiotics. Semiotics is the study of signs and symbols and their use or interpretation written by Anne Friedberg, entitled The Punishing Other Fatal Attraction. In a recent Hyatt Regency ad campaign, a glossy color image of the Hyatt Regency Wakayola, pardon my pronunciation, was matched with the following text. Having your dreams fulfilled can be far more therapeutic than having them analyzed. The ad copy continued, a resort where acting out your fantasies is a perfectly acceptable form of behavior. Of course, we don't mean to discourage you from seeking professional help. On the contrary, by all means, talk to a travel agent. The value system exemplified in this advertisement, where agencies of travel and fantasy are favored over those of analysis and or critique, is quite common in popular culture. The, quote, professional help, end quote, marketed here is not analytic therapy, but it's opposite, as if travel provides a fulfilling flight from analysis. Fatal Attraction, Adrian Lin's 1987 film, could easily be promoted with a similar tactic. By all means, talk to a video rental agent. In this film, the character Dan Gallagher, played by Michael Douglas, acts out his fantasies and decidedly resists analyzing his behavior. I'm lucky, Dan says when Alex Glenn Close asks him about his marriage. It is Sunday afternoon and they are lunching on pasta and listening to Madame Butterfly in her loft. Dan is seeing her for the second time in their sex-saturated weekend. So, what are you doing here? Alex retorts. Dan answers with an evasive grimace. 
Throughout the film, whenever Alex asks Dan a question which might force him to analyze his actions, he bristles with defensiveness. As Alex insists in contact with him persists, phone calls, visits to his office, Dan becomes more and more antagonistic. You need help, he says with some disgust after he finally agrees to meet her on the street outside her office, a meeting which she demanded in a phone call to his home at two o'clock in the morning. Intensifying the viciousness of his accusation, he proclaims as a descendant of the subway, you need a shrink. Alex's calm response only irritates him more as she says quite evenly, why are you so hostile? I'm not your enemy. You spent that second night with me. You must like me a little. Jesus Christ, he responds. Why do you read so much into everything? Having my dreams fulfilled, one can imagine Dan Gallagher saying, is much more therapeutic than having them analyzed. Fatal Attraction provides a cathartic tour through high-risk, erotic, extramarital sex and its consequences. As a film of the AIDS era, its narrative efficiently acts out fears about promiscuous, non-monogamous behavior. By constructing Alex as an agent that simultaneously threatens her sexual partners and undermines the stability of the nuclear family, the film's narrative literalizes her as a disease with life-threatening consequences. The narrative ending, where only the killing of Alex will stop her viral threat upon the family, safely cauterizes any infection that Dan's actions may have incurred. And by staging the final murder in self-defense, Alex's unwanted pregnancy, Dan and his wife Beth do not want it, is ended not by abortion, but by killing the woman whose desires started everything in the first place. An ably wrought, well-acted film, Fatal Attraction received Academy Award nominations in 1987 for Best Picture and Best Director. In addition, all three of its central characters received Oscar nominations. Anne Archer and Glenn Close for their performances as Best Supporting Actress and Best Actress, respectively. Michael Douglas for Best Actor. While the outcome of the Academy vote does not necessarily indicate an endorsement of one role over another, it does reinforce the narrative position of the film. Michael Douglas was the only nominee to win an Oscar. The Dan Gallagher character was clearly the victor. Despite this, the nominations of both Close and Archer emphasize that as actresses, they transformed otherwise stereotypically flat roles with their credible performances. Much of the journalistic attention granted the film after its release was in relation to real-life fatal attraction stories, cases in which spurned lovers turned self-destructive and then violent. Only by contrasting the number of real-life cases which involved violent, obsessive behavior by both men and women does one realize how emphatically fatal attraction genders this destructive behavior as female. And worse, the film locates such behavior in a particular type of woman, the unmarried female professional. 
In the following brief essay, I would like to move beyond a character as case study analysis to offer an account of the way in which the film constructs these characters and positions spectators in relation to them. As it was reported nationwide, audiences cheered the final strangulation and drowning of Alex Forrest as if she were a female Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street. Fatal Attraction tidily staged a familiar ideological schema where men are allowed their desires while women are punished for theirs. In this way, Fatal Attraction joins the ranks of a long list of films which place the spectator in identification with a position they might not otherwise endorse. D.W. Griffith's 1917 Birth of a Nation serves as an early example of a film which became the site of heated journalistic debate over the ways in which the structure of cinematic narrative gives epic authenticity to a rigid ideological agenda. In Birth of a Nation, the narrative threat to the sanctity of the Southern home and the family was used to position audiences to root for the Ku Klux Klan as Klansmen rode an elaborate cross-cut conclusion to avenge the death of Flora Cameron, the youngest daughter of a white Southern family. Fatal Attraction has the threat resolution narrative structure not much different than the simplest Griffith biograph, One Wheeler. The film opens with the family in the home, its intimate sanctity evident in the clutter of family photographs on every surface. This silent iconography presence of the family, its history and traditions, asserts itself on surfaces in Dan's office and country home. Almost every telephone, the line of interruption to the family sanctum, has a family photo placed next to it. The film closes with a shot of a photo of the smiling family unit. After Alex's murder, the threat has been resolved and the family is reunited, even though in ways disjunct from the photo, Beth, the wife, is battered and bandaged and Ellen, the child, has been traumatized. But by portraying Alex as a character who turns her anger outward, who begins a seemingly unstoppable trajectory towards escalating violence, the story is also deprived of its ethical considerations. Even though Dan and Beth both threaten Alex before her actions seem fully to deserve it, you do and I'll kill you, Dan screams as Alex threatens to call his wife. If you ever come near my family again, Beth says into the phone after the rabbit has been brutally boiled, I'll kill you. Alex's murder becomes justifiable self-defense. James Dearden's film Diversion, which served as the inspiration for Fatal Attraction, had an ending in which Alex, in true Madame Butterfly fashion, kills herself because Dan will ha not have anything to do with her. With this narrative ending, the burden of guilt resides in Dan. Almost immediately after his weekend of wild sex with Alex Forrest, Dan begins to have fantasies of ridding himself of its consequences, and his solutions become increasingly focused on doing away with the body of Alex. 
Her voice remains the most insistent sign of her on the phone and then on the tape cassette. Dan attempts to silence her irritating arias through the buffered insulation of his office secretary and by changing his phone number. But while Alex's voice is reasonable, her actions, as they become more and more desperate, are not. Alex's pregnancy releases what otherwise might have remained contained, introducing another voice to disrupt Beth and Dan's conjugality. By the time Dan listens to her voice on his car tape player as he drives through a tunnel, part of you is growing inside of me. I feel you. I taste you. I think you. I touch you. Alex has achieved a monstrous proportion. Fatal Attraction borrows from a mixture of genres, from the excesses of the operatic to the dark iconography of the film noir and the uneasy camera positions of the horror film. In its appeal to the operatic, the film soundtrack carries the Madame Butterfly overtones into its narrative libretto. Dan Gallagher is Pinkerton, insensitive to the subjective impact of his actions on the woman with whom he has had an affair. Madame Butterfly ends Pinkerton's misunderstanding and purifies herself with suicide, committing near-ritual Harry Carey in front of her son as her voice reaches its most poignant crescendo. In the same way that opera adores and then kills its female characters, unravels them with slow plots, lingers on their suffering and arias, and provides more pleasure the more unreal its operatic effects, the narrative of fatal attraction requires the death or domestication of its female victim, Alex. Film noir codes Alex's appearance. When we first see her at the samurai self-help party, she glares back at Dan's friend Jimmy, who retorts, perhaps with full foreshadowing irony, equating her physical pre presence with dangerous sexuality, if looks could kill. Although both Alex and Beth attend this first party in black outfits with plunging necklines, Alex's wardrobe is limited to white or black clothing, as if her costume choice alone refers her back to the look of noir from the films of the 40s. Rain and cigarette smoke surround her. Alex is a combination of the film noir femme fatale and a horror film demon like Carrie. Both genres are focused on the punishment of the figure while Dan Gallagher may have the narrative events on his side, many of the subjective shots in the film position Alex in an equation with the blind space of the subjective camera. This is a trope used commonly in horror films, equating off-screen space with menace, denoting the lurking monster, psychopath, evildoer. A dramatic example of this is when Dan and Alex are playing in Central Park with the family dog, Walter. Suddenly, Dan clutches his chest and falls to the ground as if he has just suffered a heart attack. In a fast-tracking, subjective shot, Alex runs to Dan's collapsed form. When she gets there, Dan opens his eyes and laughs at his prank. Alex does not laugh. She tells him with restrained severity, 
that when she was seven years old, her father died of a heart attack right in front of her. Dan has initiated dissembling behavior, the disjunctions of which become more and more a part of Alex's separation of her statements from her actions. As soon as Dan apologizes for his prank, Alex breaks into a cackling laugh, taking on his trickery, and says her father is alive and well and living in Phoenix. Later in the film, when Dan breaks into her loft, he discovers a scrapbook with a clipping from 1959 indicating that her father did indeed die of a sudden heart attack when she was seven. But the truthfulness of Alex's statements have already been undermined. This scene initiates the use of subjective camera techniques to indicate the instability of Alex's position. A fast-tracking shot moves through the house as Beth discovers the rabbit boiling on the stove. The presence of Alex is implied in the off-screen space. In the final scene, in the steamy bathroom of the Gallagher home, the moving camera is positioned behind the bandaged Beth as she looks in the mirror and the monster, Alex, appears out of the blind space of the camera's position. But despite the number of point of view shots attributed to Alex, Dan Gallagher is the protagonist centering the narrative. His equilibrium is what the audience screams to protect. Dan is shown in his workplace, at home, in work-related socializing. Even though Alex is a woman with a high-powered job in publishing, she is never shown working, is never shown with other friends. It seems incredible that she has no other female friends with whom she could discuss her infatuation. The only time we see Alex at work is when, in supplement to the work week, she attends a weekend editorial meeting to supply information about her author's affair with a U.S. Senator. In a world where non-monogamy sells books, it is if even her professional labor is somehow about mistressing. Beth, the wife, is open and generous when Alex comes to see the apartment. Alex is expecting a baby, she announces with a broad smile of female identity, but her trust and openness become near fatal flaws. The two women are made to fear and hate each other, flattened into representations depicting them as two-dimensional beings, either as victim or villain. There is no one whole woman in the film. Neither Anne Archer nor Glenn Close plays a fully rounded character. One is happy, one is not. One is a personal life, one does not. One is a professional life, the other does not. But these are cinematic constructions. The split is not that simple. Women with careers and no families are not necessarily emotionally unstable, and women who are wives and mothers are not necessarily happy and well-adjusted. It is part of the ideological mandate of the film that the roles of women become binary, threatening to each other, women in the home. Fatal Attraction asserts should fear women in the workplace as potential threats to the sanctity of their marriages and the safety of their families. In the end, it is not just Dan the husband who kills Alex, he strangles her. It is also Beth, she shoots her. This 
family that slays together stays together ending supplies both members of the marriage with the satisfaction of killing the interloper. While it may be true that the film adequately reflects male fears about women and female fears about men, it is this type of film which reinforces the stereotypes that foster this distrust. The characters illustrate a semantic distrust between men and women, enacting the breakdown between signified and signifer along with lines of word and deed. One cannot believe what someone says because the word does not correspond with the act. Alex says one thing, but does something else. And what is most disturbing about fatal attraction is that this semiotic disjunction is gendered as feminine. Alex's reasonable statements become attached to a more and more irrational and dangerous character. When Dan stands aghast in the public space of the subway and says, you're sick, Alex's response is, why? Because I won't allow you to treat me like some slut? but the very credibility of this statement is undercut by her actions. It is as if all women who speak these seemingly reasonable statements are disingenuous and, not very far beneath the surface, knife-wielding, raving monsters. In the world proposed by fatal attraction, unmarried professional women are biological time bombs hoping to become impregnated before they explode. Alex's statements appear to be quite sound on the surface. I had a wonderful time. I'd like to see you again. Is that so bad? She asks Dan if they've eaten lunch in her loft. I'm fine. I'm really all right. You don't have to explain. I just thought I'd ask. She tells him when he declines her invitation to see Madame Butterfly. But Alex's actions accelerate outward in more and more destructive fashion. She slits her wrist before Dan leaves after they make love for the second time. Despite his insistent evasion, she continues to call him at home and at the office. She surprises him at his office wearing a black leather trench coat that is distinctly at odds with the brown tones of the Victorian furniture, patriarchal, portraiture and legal volumes of his office. She visits his wife in their apartment, posing as a prospective buyer, announcing that she is going to have a baby. Her violence turns outward when she vandalizes one of the most blatant signs of his yupscale family life, his Volvo station wagon. She follows him as he drives home to his new house in the country and peers through the windows, voyeuristically surveying the picturesque family scene. When Alex boils the daughter's long-desired pet rabbit, she reenacts the rabbit test, where positive pregnancy means the rabbit died. When Beth and Ellen separately discover the rabbit's fate, their simultaneous screams signify the horrific intrusion of Alex's pregnancy into their otherwise idyllic lives. Closing in, Alex kidnaps Ellen and takes her for a wild roller coaster ride at Rye Playland. And then finally, she breaks into Dan's Westchester home and attacks his already injured wife. 
While some feminists have wanted to read the film as a female revenge fantasy, where the spurned lover attacks the selfish married man, it is the wife and child, not the husband, who are the direct victims of Alex's attacks. Alex, Alex's extreme behavior discredits her position as the wronged lover and narrowly justifies the narrative's punishment of her as a strident female. Even if a tenuous equilibrium has been won at the end, Alex is silenced, the pregnancy is terminated, the daughter Ellen has been scarred irreparably. Ellen, who mirrored her mother's behavior at the opening of the film by painting her face with mommy's makeup in war paint-like patterns, and who repeats mommy's language, shit, 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 has seen too much. She has witnessed the positions that grown-up women occupy, reduced to victim or villain, and will certainly encounter some problems as she contends with her own adolescent skirmishes with femininity. While Ellen is only a character in the film, what has viewing Fatal Attraction done to us? Please accept my half-hearted apology for sharing that with you. But felt it was fascinating and I really wanted to share it with you guys. Come on. I loved the way they reframed Alex. I love this interpretation of the movie. I didn't agree with all of it, but I still really loved it anyway. So four years ago, uh, Glenn Close revealed that the original ending for Fatal Attraction had Alex killing herself in a very Madam Butterfly kind of way and trying to frame Dan for murder in the process of that. But it didn't play well with the audiences and it was changed to the now iconic ending. I always loved the original ending, revealed Close. I always felt Alex was more suicidal than psychotic. She went on to explain that she fought tooth and nail to keep her ending in the film, but was eventually convinced to reshoot the version that audiences now know. Six months after we finished shooting, I got a call that we had to reshoot the ending, she said. I fought it for two weeks. It was going to make a character I loved into a murdering psychopath. I was in a meeting with Michael, Stanley, and Adrian. I was furious. I said to Michael, how would you feel if it were your character? He said, babe, I'm a whore. So in this article from four years ago, she explained that she approached Paramount with the idea of rebooting it with one key difference, changing the perspective from Dan to Alex's. I had so many secrets as Alex, she said. The woman I was playing was not the same one who was perceived by the public, but I didn't have the dialogue or the scenes to illuminate her backstory. If you did Fatal Attraction from Alex's point of view, she would be a tragic person, not a dangerous, evil one. And actually, they did it. They fucking did it. Paramount is making it from Alex's point of view. So Alexandria Cunningham will be the writer. Joshua Jackson will play Dan. Amanda Peet, whom I adore as an actress, will be Beth. And Lizzie Kaplan will play Alex. 
As a big fan of the film, Kaplan immediately saw that there was more to explore. In the film, Alex is the villain of the story and Dan is the hero, and there is no gray area, Kaplan says. Now audiences have changed so much, we are no longer primed to believe in this villainous woman story. She's clearly mentally ill, and that's not something that is really touched upon at all in the movie. There is a lot to unpack with her. She has a full backstory and a full point of view in our show. With a limited series, there is an opportunity to take more time getting to know all of these characters. So, and it's out April of this year, guys. I forget what date. Again, on Paramount. Now, it could be really good, or it could get too hokey. Or, like, too mentally health-focused. You know what I mean, okay? Or maybe too me too e, which I will just fucking cringe the fuck out. We will just have to wait and see. Maybe I'll even review it. Okay, <laughs> did we do it? <laughs> Did we, did we wrap it up cohesively? I just, I honestly never know, you guys. I suppose anything is possible. I'm so glad we had this time together. Just to have a laugh or sing a song. Seems we just get started and before you know it comes the time we have to say so long as always i'm margo and i don't know what the fuck i'm talking about but it sounds good and really, that's all that matters. Join me next time as we chat about God knows what. Right.